What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Stacks Rank Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Daniel DeBrock. And today I'm joined by uh, Mike T. Nelson. So first off, Mike, thank you so much for jumping on. We're going to be discussing uh, recovery from training and building resiliency. Can you give a little bit of a background into who you are and some of the work you've been involved with? Sure. The semi-short version is I probably got into lifting like most people with uh, sort of lifting in see, probably my first year in college. I was a six foot three eel shaped rake of a person, about 153 pounds, even starting college. <laughs> Didn't really do very good at any sports and thought, well, I'll take a class on weight training. They'll show me how to lift. And the guy showed up for day one and then disappeared and just had somebody take attendance after that. So I was kind of disappointed. So a lot of just studying on my own, a whole bunch of trial and error, uh, did a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science, and then decided to do two years postgraduate, did a master's in mechanical engineering, biomechanics. I worked on a project that the time was so classified, they didn't tell me it was classified. I was doing computer imaging uh, modeling of a monkey in front of a big microwave transmitter. Uh, so my advisor, five years after I graduated, it's like, hey, here's your uh, master's thesis. It was so classified, we couldn't tell you it was classified. And he sends me this little clipping from a newspaper that says, uh, military declassifies ray gun. I was like, oh, <laughs> I thought it was weird that Brooks Air Force Base in Texas cared about collision avoidance systems on cars, which they didn't. Um, I finished that, <clears throat> went to work for actually a cardiac medical device company for about 10 years. During that time, decided to go back to school again, did five years in a PhD program in biomedical engineering, decided I didn't want to do math anymore. So I switched to exercise physiology. Ironically, got more math projects looking at metabolic flexibility and heart rate variability. That took me about another seven years to finish that. Um, started coaching people. I sound old now because probably officially 2005 is the first time I actually got money <laughs> to do it. Uh, did the NSCA and uh, CSDS like 2006, I think, and worked in gyms for a little while and then eventually transitioned about 10 years ago to full time just doing it um, online. And then right now I work with some clients online. I have a flex diet certification, a physiologic flexibility certification, which we'll touch on a little bit. And then I'm an associate professor for the Kerrigan Institute. And then I teach also online for uh, Rocky Mountain University, doing a class right now on athlete monitoring, 6,000 level class. And I'll be teaching uh, biomechanics coming up for uh, Walsh University. That's awesome. And athlete monitoring is something that uh, I personally find incredibly interesting. The more that I, the more that I learn about it, the more it it just really opens up so many uh, so many rabbit holes. Um, so hopefully we'll we'll kind of get to touch on some of that as well. Yeah, um, I guess a good place to start the conversation is when you are initially looking at that sort of training paradigm when we're looking at uh, you know presenting a stimulus and being able to effectively recover and then reproduce that result over and over and over what are some of the primary things that you look at in terms of you know these are the things that really fundamentally create a good training and recovery protocol and then we can kind of move into some of the more advanced uh, aspects of that yeah the acronym i like is srr so exactly what you said stimulate recover, repeat. If you just do those things and you get better at each one of those, you're good, right? And even on an off day, 
the stimulate part could be just, you know, stimulating your parasympathetic nervous system, doing some cardiovascular light stuff also. So with stimulus, I remember having a conversation with uh, Cal Dietz, University of Minnesota. God, it's probably going back five or six years. Uh, I was helping him with, uh, actually working on the Triphasic 2 book. At the time, I was helping him with a project. So I'm down there at the U of M. He was right around the corner from where I did my PhD. And he fills up this huge whiteboard with all this stuff. And I was, you know, my job was to help translate it into an article for him. I'm looking at this board and I'm going, how the hell am I ever going to explain this to someone in like a short article who wasn't here, who watched the whole presentation? I looked at him and I'm like, oh, so you're saying just do the highest quality work possible first and then repeat that. He kind of looks at me funny and he's like, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> so if you can do high quality work first and then worry about repeating it. And that may be just specific to what you're doing. You know, if your job is to get stronger, that may be singles, doubles, triples, whatever. It's to get better cardiovascular conditioning. That may be hitting your pace, hitting your times. So that's the first thing I look at. And it could be just rep ranges. I program with a lot of rep ranges. You know, did you get close to 12 to 15 reps of what you did last time? If you're not getting close to that, then you can decide if you want to alter something or not. But I think most people have no idea what they're even trying to target or what's even better than what they did before. So they just go to the gym and I just lift weights and, oh, like a year's gone by. Why am I not any stronger? Why didn't I have any more muscle? And it's not going to be nice linear progression. You know, it's going to be ups and downs and and kind of wavy. But you should have some goal of, you know, volumes you want to hit, density, et cetera. And when the quality just isn't there, that could be movement speed, could be quality of the work, could be how it feels, could be, you know, just pure output performance, volume, strength, et cetera. If you've rested and you've done everything you can and it's just not there, then yeah, maybe it's just time to kind of shut it down for that day. So I'd stay on the, the stimulate training part. That's the first thing I would look at. And then you had a question about the recovery aspect, right? Um, yeah, uh, but but I guess I just kind of wanted to to touch again on what you were saying about high quality work. I've always found that one of the first things that I have to work with when I get a new athlete is getting them to actually work the output that's prescribed in the training, because they'll look at it and, and a, a comment that I often get is, "Oh, this is way less volume than I'm used to doing," and I'll be like, "Okay, well." let's just see how it goes for the first couple of weeks. And then I'll be like, hey, we need to push harder. That's probably closer to like a four or five RIR, not a real seven or eight, you know? And then by the time they're actually hitting their, their target intensity zones, they're like, holy man, like I'm, I'm feeling just fried after my training sessions. Like I feel good, I'm, I'm recovering, I'm, it's great, but like, holy smokes, these are really hard training sessions. And, uh, and so I'm like, okay, do you still want to increase volume? And they're like, no, <laughs> definitely not. So I, I think training output is one of those things that's really underutilized or it's, e even in intermediate and advanced athletes, like, cause even if, if you're not going to have someone constantly giving you that feedback, eventually you're just going to sort of taper off and you're going to decline. I think that's just sort of natural, you know, you sort of rest on your laurels, but, um, yeah, I guess I just kind of wanted to reiterate how, how important that was, your, your comment about uh, output. But in terms of recovery, so how do you approach the recovery process then as well? Yeah, and one quick thing on output too is it it's kind of amazing how often that just gets missed. Like I've seen some data with someone as a, you know, they're looking at output on a rower. They've got a full metabolic cart. They send me all the 
you know, the data from that oxygen is fractional expiration rate. They got four moxies all plastered all over the person and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's cool. That's useful. I, I have the same equipment. I like it. I think it can be useful. And I'm like, okay, so for round two and three, what was their output and what did you want them to hit? And they're like, oh, oh, but their heart rate was really high. And they said their RPE was like a nine out of 10. I'm like, okay, so there's probably a fair amount of effort there, but like, what did they do? Like, like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, we, we forgot to measure that part. <laughs> and it's like, so all the metrics in the world aren't going to save you if you don't know what your output is. And you can do the inverse. You can have no metrics in the world. And if your output is consistently getting better, then you're, you're doing something right. You may not know why. You may not understand any of it. But at least you know you're like on the right path at that point. So I think that gets lost a lot of times. Yeah, absolutely. And then on the recovery side... So to me, I think you need to define recovery first. So my definition of recovery is how fast can you just get back to baseline, right? And by back to baseline, the assumption is that if we keep doing this over time, we'll see an increase in performance. Now, if you want to get super fancy, I could potentially do things to get back to baseline faster that may mess up the adaptation. That's, you know, kind of debatable thing from acute studies. Um, but how fast can you get back to baseline, assuming you didn't screw up the adaptation you wanted? And if you can get back to baseline faster, so let's say you're training three days a week, your recovery is kind of crappy, and you try to add a fourth day, and it just never works. If you can speed up your recovery, you can get back to baseline faster, and you could probably do some high-quality work for that fourth session. Maybe you could get a fifth session. Maybe you could go to two-a-days. Who knows, right? So I think the definition I like is just how fast can you get back to baseline? And so once you know that, what is your baseline? How would you measure it? And if you know that, that allows you to program more effectively. And then are you looking at the short term or the long term? Are you looking at the session today, interset, week to week, session to session, you know, mesocycle to mesocycle, quadrennial cycle if you're an Olympic athlete, whatever. So you can look at that over the course of the whole period of time also. So the people I work with, I'll separate from set to set, day to day, and then sort of like six to seven week block to the next block. And to me, those are all just different things. They're all the same idea, but they're different time frames. So for example, if you're trying to recover faster from set to set, you may play with breathing, you may play with eye position, you may do some walking around. There's things you can do that can help with that. But they probably look a little different than if I'm looking at recovery from Monday to go again Tuesday. That may look different from recovery week one versus week four, or week four, we're really pushing um, volume. And then the last part I would add on that, and I could answer any questions you have. I think other markers like HRV are useful for that. And I'm a big fan of HRV, but we have to remember what it is we're actually measuring. So to me, HRV is more of a proxy measurement, and it only tells you the status on your autonomic nervous system at the time of measurement. To me, that's super useful. Like if I could pick one measurement that's non-invasive that I could get every day, I find HRV to be the most useful measurement. But again, it's only telling you the status of your nervous system on that day. And so if that's the only thing you tracked, you'll find, especially with strength and power athletes, it doesn't really look to correlate well with acute performance on that day. Meaning you'll get email from athletes that are like, 
oh, my HRV was red and dog shit today. And I went to the gym and set PRs and ah, HRV is pointless. Why are we having to do this? But to me, it, it's looking at the tachometer on your car. It's like, I could redline my little Jetta and make it to Cub Foods faster, but I'm probably gonna be able to do that day in and day out and expect the car to last forever. So to me, HRV is the thinking of a monitoring of the cost of the system. So how hard did you put down on the gas and what is the result of that? And within that, you can use surrogate markers then of HRV for recovery. If I did, let's say Monday, it was heavy weight training and Tuesday was an aerobic day and Wednesday, my HRV is good to go again. Hmm, Tuesday's session was probably pretty good. I could look Tuesday morning and see, hmm, HRV hasn't really recovered yet. But then I'm looking to see how does that correlate again back to output? So HRV is a surrogate marker to give me an idea of, you know, opening up the hood of the engine to see what's going on for cost, because that'll be different for different athletes, different people, even if on paper their lifestyles appear similar. And that allows me then to customize it to that person for programming. And then we can get fancier and maybe add more quote unquote recovery modalities to try to speed that up. Yeah, that's great. And I really love the fact you brought up the, the, difference between like an acute versus a chronic uh, indicator and and how those things can definitely differentiate uh, between like hey i hit that pr versus okay well we'll be able to hit that pr in two weeks if you keep this up because <laughs> um, mm -hmm. i i do think that that sometimes that gets lost a little bit or like a tool kind of like bmi a lot of the times i've been recently anyways i've been hearing people sort of throw bmi in the trash and i'm like it's an effective tool but you can't like if you use it appropriately, but if you're using it incorrectly, then yeah, you know, it's like, it's not gonna be that effective, but. You're saying uh, body mass index. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so it's like, it, it does a good job of what it's supposed to do, you know? But I've heard a lot of people trash it. And I'm like, well, it's not necessarily supposed to do these things. It's specifically, you know, meant for like, just practicality and fast use and stuff like that. And so I, I really like that kind of distinction that you made. But in terms of uh, recovery sort of set to set, you brought up a couple of really important things. So breathing is something that I find really interesting. And it's definitely not really discussed outside of like basic brace, bracing mechanics uh, just in, in powerlifting and strength training in general. So um, I would love if you could touch on uh, breathing and how that actually impacts recovery uh, set to set and how, you know, even maybe potentially touching on like breathing meditations or breathing exercises outside of training, how that might affect recovery uh, as well as you did mention eye position. And that was something I've heard of, but I'm really not familiar enough to even know necessarily what questions to ask about it. So if you could uh, also touch on that, sure. that'd be really interesting. So at a high level, I think really elite athletes are really good at being extremely sympathetic and then very parasympathetic and transitioning back and forth very, very fast. If you look at high level athletes, they're really, the elite of the elite don't really make it look hard, right? They make really hard things look easy. Like have you ever seen the videos of elite track athletes running against just an average athlete, you know, running against other elite athletes are like, oh yeah, you know, you've seen Bolt's definitely a little bit better. But you see it compared to just an average Joe and you're like, holy crap, that's insane. <laughs> but they're so relaxed that they make it, there's this deceptive quality where it's like, oh yeah, I could probably do that. It's like, no. I, I don't I don't think you could. Um, so they're very good at being very sympathetic and being very parasympathetic and switching back and forth very fast. And you can 
to some degree, I think mimic that in the in the weight room. You would want to be more sympathetic, especially before kind of a gross motor task. You see this all the time in like powerlifting versus Olympic weightlifting, right? Like you'll see some powerlifters who don't get real psyched up. You'll see some that do, and it's kind of split. But you don't see a lot of high-level Olympic weightlifters like just getting super psyched up and people hitting them in the face and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. If if it worked, they would definitely have figured out how to do it by now. But when you increase that kind of that arousal scale, you can increase like gross motor output. Um, but if you've ever tried to like thread a needle or do anything technical at that point, good luck, right? Which, in my opinion, normally lifters who do better from that, at least on the powerlifting side tend to also be a lot more experienced too um, because there's a different skill set within that. Um, but you don't see Olympic weightlifters doing that because there is more fine motor skill involved in that. So we can get more performance output acutely by being a little bit more on that sympathetic scale. That's a dial depending upon what level of athlete you're, you're at. And then we want to recover, get back to baseline faster, being more parasympathetic. So then what things over our physiology can we control acutely? So the main intervention point is going to be breathing. If I breathe faster, I'm going to be more sympathetic, right? Everybody can try this. Just sit, put a heart rate monitor on yourself and just start breathing really, really fast. What you'll see is that your heart rate starts to go up, even if you're seated at rest doing no exercise whatsoever, right? There's something called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And it's usually related to slowing down of heart rate. But if we do the opposite, we breathe slower, we take a longer exhale, what we will see is that our heart rate will actually start to go down. And this is because your heart and your lungs have to be very, very tightly coupled to each other. The heart's literally trying to extract oxygen out of the blood as it's just, just like running past. So the heart has to be very much timed to the lungs. We find is if you breathe faster, that's more sympathetic. If you breathe slower, that's more parasympathetic. If I do a longer exhale, that's more parasympathetic. If I do very short breaths, that's more sympathetic. If I breathe in through my nose, that's more parasympathetic. And there's actually some pretty good research on that. If I breathe in and out of my mouth, that's more sympathetic. So just by playing around with those, you have a way of altering your kind of your arousal state or the state of your autonomic nervous system. The catch is how far do you want to push it and what are the consequences, right? So someone listening to that may go, okay, that's cool. So you want me to like superventilate and hyperventilate before I do my next max lift? Yeah, the risk of that is you might pass out. Passing out with heavy load, not conducive to lifting more load. And some of the research in that area in terms of max performance is really, really hit or miss, probably not the most beneficial. That gets into the bore effect and probably a whole bunch of other interesting stuff too. But how it can be useful then is if I just look at breathing, what I find works best is have your heart rate come back down to baseline and then maybe do two or three short, quick breaths right before you do the lift. I find is enough to help a little bit, but without you know any risk of you know passing out or anything like that. Then you can also look at recovery between set. Between set, I would want to get back down. I'd want to become more parasympathetic. So as breathing allows, I would switch to more nasal breathing in and out. And then I would try to do a little bit longer exhales. The caveat is 
you want to transition and make it relatively easy, I wouldn't necessarily force that. If we look at eye position on top of that, if I'm looking at something like the screen or this microphone very close, more close focused is going to be more on the sympathetic side. As my gaze is more open or more peripheral, I'm going to be more on the parasympathetic side. So if we were having this conversation in person and someone all of a sudden ran into the room with a gun, we would all be very hypervigilant and focused right on that. We'd see a massive increase in heart rate. And in the worst case, you get this kind of sort of tunnel vision, right? Because your brain says, hey, that's the threat. That's the only thing we want to focus on to that extreme. There's another thing called, uh, Dan Huberman has talked about this too, called optic flow. That if I'm walking and moving through an environment, simply my brain and body have to figure out, am I moving through the environment or is the environment moving through me? And it does that by, you know, proprioceptive impact, you know, feedback from your senses, uh, how things are moving in your periphery. So moving through your environment, especially with a more relaxed gaze or trying to look far away, is more on the parasympathetic side. So what does it look like for lifting? So before a big heavy lift, you might do two or three quick inhales, whatever cue you want to use. I like external cues a little bit better than internal. And then as soon as you're done, you would try to transition your breathing rate slower. You would bias the exhale. You would try to switch back to nasal, inhale, and exhale. You may want to widen your gaze, so kind of be more open. Or I tell clients a lot of time, just walk around the gym or, you know, you don't want to be a weirdo, but like pretend like you're going to get water and then walk back, right? Get some general movement, some optic flow. And then as you're preparing for your next lift, you can then sit and then I like having a very short focus. So now I'm going to try to transition back to being sympathetic. Normally, like if I'm doing a bench rest, I'll sit on the edge of the bench. I'll have my hands in front and I'm just focusing on that point. And I'm just thinking about what is the next thing I want to accomplish. And then you just keep repeating through that cycle. Yeah. And it's funny how much of that stuff is kind of intuitive, I guess, because yes, you know, ultimately you exactly what you described. If you were in the back of a, a powerlifting meter or weightlifting meet, you see a lot of these people sort of do that in, intuitively where, you know, they'll just kind of be sitting there and sort of zoned out where they're not really looking at anything. They're just kind of looking at the floor or something like that. And so it's really interesting when you actually kind of have some data to, to sort of explain why all of these people collectively sort of adopted very similar characteristics across the board. Um, so, so that's really interesting about, uh, about the, the eye and the focus versus like the more peripheral, um, uh, vision. Now in terms of, uh, recovery modalities. So this is something that I think a lot of people sort of uh, get a little bit confused on. They'll talk about stretching and at first stretching was like, Oh, don't do it. It's going to destroy your, your gains. And then it was, Oh, it doesn't actually have any effect. And now it's like, stretching is worthless entirely. And then there's Theraguns and ice baths and contrast, uh, you know, all sorts of different things. And so um, what are some of the misconceptions about recovery modalities? And what are some of the ones that you maybe have found to be effective? And then also providing a little bit of context around when these maybe should be utilized, whether it's like in training, off season, before a competition or during like a multi-day competition or something like that. Yeah. So I'd say the first myth is that 
people think a really shitty program is going to be saved by recovery modalities and it's not at least not in my experience um you could have all the fanciest stuff in the world and i think there is a place for it i do think it can help but if your program is just a you know floating trash bin fire and your coach doesn't know what they're doing you're just kind of screwed for starters especially if they're pushing volume intensity overload etc so i think a lot of times people don't look at their program and they don't have any metric of cost or going back to they haven't measured their output if their output is continually going up over time they're probably on the right path like could some ex recovery stuff maybe accelerate it possibly you could always potentially be better um, so looking at your training program making sure that's good making sure you have some surrogate markers of output again i like using hrv to look at cost so i've got a little bit of idea of looking under the engine looking at the tachometer as we're going along you know, because you can get acute performance bumps, but it can come at the cost of very high stress. And if that's the case, then I would want to know about it um, instead of thinking, oh, everything's hunky-dory and all of a sudden the engine blows up and you can't figure out what happened. Uh, the second part would be just basic nutrition. I've seen from some higher level athletes, some pretty good training programs and some pretty good nutrition, but their trainer never talked to their nutritionist and they don't match up at all at all and makes no sense whatsoever so if you look at them independently you're like that looks pretty good you look at that one that looks pretty good you're like oh they're doing them both at the same time oh yeah that's a horrible idea don't do that um, so making sure that nutrition actually matches what you're trying to do for your training and matches your training objectives and your goals in season off season macros micros all that kind of stuff um, so the concept i use in the flex diet cert is uh, matched macros or mismatched macros, which again, sounds like two polar opposites, which they are. So matched macros would mean that it's usually a performance-based, typically an in-season type program, although you can definitely do it in the off-season. And your whole goal is to maximize performance as much as you can, whatever constraints you have, you know, weight class, et cetera. In general, then you want more carbohydrates when you're doing more glycolytic carbohydrate based work lifting high intensity interval training etc if you're doing more zone two aerobic stuff you'd probably get by with you know a few less calories maybe go into it fasted etc so your whole goal then is to make sure that the fuel that they're burning for exercise is the fuel that is actually present at that point in time the mismatch macros would be more of what's a distress training there you would purposely mismatch the macronutrients to facilitate potentially a higher level of adaptation, although you're giving up acute performance to do it, which is why it would definitely be more of an off season. So let's say you've got your college coach, you've worked with athletes for three years, you're going into your last off season, and you feel like they're kind of getting close to, you know, what do you think their potential would be for their time with you? You may consider then like in one of the studies for uh, training, they purposely had them do high intensity interval training on low levels of carbohydrates. So they come into the lab, they just brutalize them with this crazy high intensity cardiovascular program, eh, go home, have a little protein, come back to the lab the next day. And so the next day when they come in, they're training on low liver glycogen and low muscle glycogen. And they do a high intensity training program again. So a program that's primarily using carbohydrates as a fuel. Now, as you would expect, their acute performance on that next day 
wasn't very good at all. It was actually pretty crappy. Um, their HRV and scores, I've done this with people, it, it goes up pretty high. It gets pretty stressful. Um, however, what they look at some of the mechanisms and the underlying adaptations, they see some interesting things that they appear to be elevated higher than what they were otherwise. So changes in, you know, uh, just all the enzymes and stuff that go into it. I won't bore you to tears with all of them. Um, one of the studies from Marquette did this for three weeks, and they saw changes in body comp, increase in a 10K time, I think an increase in one of the wind gates. I'd have to double check. And they gave both groups the same calories and the same macronutrients. They just arranged them so that the one group had the sort of distress training sessions where they were doing that second high-intensity session on low glycogen. Now, another couple of studies that followed up from that didn't necessarily see the same results. So the training on that in terms of acute looking right after the end of the study is pretty split. However, you could make an argument that, okay, now that I have these higher level of these enzymes and these you know molecular adaptations, I can switch back to a matched macro space model prioritizing performance, and then you'll normally see a little bit more of an increase, right? So it's just like, you know, if you're going to see performance, you're going to see a drop. And then hopefully you see this kind of classically called super compensation, right? It's kind of the same idea, but you're just applying it to nutrition. So you could look at that for in-season versus off-season. In terms of um, the the outcomes that they saw, has that been done on like resistance training? Or is it just specifically for the, the high-intensity cardio? It's primarily been done on kind of mixed athletes or more on the endurance, um, wind gate type stuff. I think they did a 10K. I can't remember exactly what they did. The caveat with it is the amount of weight training you would need to deplete glycogen levels, you would need a shit ton of weight training. So could you do it? I think you could. I don't know of a study that's done that per se in that format. Right, you can look up some of the studies on like sleep low, train high. Uh, there's all different protocols with it. Uh, most of them have been sort of an endurance type program because those are what's been shown in you know kind of classic exercise fizz to be glycogen depleting. Um, mm -hmm. You could probably only get glycogen down to about 40% is the lowest you can get it. Um, even to do that takes a fair amount of work. It's pretty horrible. And then to sleep with just like, you know, here's your protein bar, come back and let's do it again tomorrow. Boof, really sucks. Um, but I think for some athletes who are getting close to kind of their potential, you know, it may be a method to get them you know, kind of over that hump into the next area. So is it is it just the glycogen depletion? Because I know I know resistance training creates a modest reduction in glycogen, but that still can have an impact on subsequent performance, even like the next day and the next couple of days. But is it, does it have to kind of cross below a certain threshold before you start seeing some of these enzymatic adaptations like you were saying? Yeah, that's the hard part is that they don't know, right? So one of the arguments of, and I looked at this probably six months ago, again, the research on it is still pretty split, right? So you see some studies like the Marquette study was very favorable. There's another study from Grail was a Gale, G-E-I-L, that was similar setup, but didn't show any benefits. And so one of the arguments is that we don't know how far you have to drop muscle glycogen. We don't know if it's just probably not just liver glycogen. Liver glycogen will be low after an overnight fast. The only way to 
really assess that is to stuff someone in potentially an, an MRS, like so an MRI type machine, or do just a shitload of muscle biopsies, right? And not a lot of people want to do a shitload of muscle biopsies. And then you've got probably inter-individual differences, right? Because most of your muscle biopsies are gonna be your, your VMO. There's been a handful of things that have been done in other locations, but maybe certain athletes have different recruitment patterns. Maybe some athletes are you know, using slightly different muscles to do that exercise. We're taking these little muscle biopsy samples and we're kind of extrapolating that to you know, at least the lower body uh, movements. So there's probably variability in that. Um, we know that there's variability, especially on the low end, how well athletes use fat is extremely variable for low to moderate intensity exercise. Um, Gadecki's done one study on that. Hell just did one, 1999. I did one of them that's similar to that, 2015. On the high intensity side, it's variable, but we just don't have nearly as much data. And that's where I think you can get back and looking at um, output as kind of a surrogate for it. We know that very, very high intensity work, the higher output that you're doing, you are probably using more glycogen, but that also gets super messy because a study done by uh, George Brooks, they compared uh, lactate as kind of a surrogate marker for carbohydrate metabolism. They compared a pretty high level trained athletes. I think VO2 max was in the 60s and then an untrained kind of borderline metabolic syndrome group. And what they saw is that the shift to carbohydrate use actually happens sooner in the untrained group. Because if you think about it, they're just sub-max. The, their output was 250 watts, where I think the high-level guys were doing like 450 watts, right? So if you look at it as a percentage of their total, it makes sense. But if you look at it from a sheer output level, you're like, whoa, what's going on with them? So there is kind of a weird dynamic where the more kind of untrained you get, it appears your body will shift that kind of glycolytic state um, faster. We see some models of that looking at um, heart failure and cardiac, what the cardiac system wants to use. It's sort of similar to almost um, fast twitch fiber recruitment, right? So fast twitch fibers will still be recruited in older people relatively soon, but they're just not trained and they can't really do much of anything. You know, and sometimes the type 2B fibers only show up in actually highly untrained people, which is weird, right? It's almost like your body is trying to protect you as much as you can from yourself. But if you look at the output that those people could do, it's very, very minimal. So again, you can, it's good to look under the hood and see what's going on, but you want to look at output also. Long story short, to answer your question, we don't know what level of glycogen depletion you would have to do. And then once we figure that out, how would you measure it? You might be able to measure it by the amount of work. Maybe ultrasound would be a way to get there. We played around with that. My buddy Ben House did for quite a while ago. We couldn't really quite get it to work, but maybe some new technology in the future will be able to give us a little bit more data in that area. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so when I feel like to there's another part of the question I didn't answer at all. <laughs> <laughs> about uh, recovery <laughs> yeah a little bit so <laughs> that's okay it was i asked like a big set of questions at, at once so no problem um essentially talking about like uh other modalities outside of actual training so like oh yeah yeah therapy hot baths massage guns things like that i'm not a big and, fan of static stretching oh go ahead 
sorry, and and specifically also like to contextualize their utilization, you know, in season, off season, during competition, especially like a, a multi-day competition, like in strongman that they have. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a big fan of static stretching. I think it's stupid and worthless. Like I'm not convinced by any of the data I've seen. You may have a short-term drop in power, like it's into what are you actually static stretching if you've ever done any. Uh, so I've been lucky enough to, I taught anatomy and physiology for a while, did a whole bunch of courses on that. I've done, uh, Tom Myers has like a whole week dissection of fresh tissue. You get to dissect your own cadaver for like eight people, done that for like three weeks. And what you find is like everything is connected. So people are like, oh, I'm doing my little hamstring stretch. It's like, okay, sit and reach. Well, I'm stretching my hamstrings. Okay, but you're not stretching your gastroc, you're not stretching your soleus, you're not stretching the connections to the bone, to the fascia, to everything that runs in between it. You're probably doing all of it. And then if you look at the studies, what do the studies generally show is that old school sit and reach, okay, go until you feel discomfort of a eight out of 10 or whatever, measure your difference. Okay, let's do some static stretching for 60 seconds, let's remeasure. Oh wow, you gained like a, an extra inch and a half. And everyone's like, yay, this is great. But I've never really seen that transfer to anything useful. And then if you look at what is the mechanism, how they got that range of motion, it's because they were told to go to the same discomfort level they did before. What you find is if you do a lot of static stretching, that discomfort level becomes a little bit less. So that allowed them to get a little bit further. But to me, that's like, going the wrong direction. Like you're getting worse information from your nervous system than what you did before, uh, which I don't think is a good idea. Granted, I don't think static stretching is going to result in a huge amount of, you know, catastrophic injuries. It's probably going to be a mute point by the time someone actually gets to warm up and actually does their, their sport and everything else. Um, you may see some benefits from it post-exercise. My bias is I think that's more of just being intentional with your breathing, probably your eyes unconsciously, just relaxing, trying really not to do a whole lot. Um, you know, if you like doing yoga and you like doing other stuff, you find that that's restorative. Great. I think that's awesome. Uh, I don't think static stretching is going to save you performance wise. Um, other than that, I always look at in season versus off season. In general, in season model is going to be more of a use stress model. So, stress you can generally recover from faster. And so in season, your whole goal is just performance. Like you'll probably give up a little bit of muscle, a little bit of strength, especially at an elite level, because you're literally going to be paid to perform on, you know, Saturday again, or every second day, third day, you know, depending upon what sport you're in. So things like that, where your performance feels better, like I'm all for. So for example, everyone goes bonkers now about cold water immersion. Like, oh my God, cold water, it's going to hurt some of my gains and I'm going to lose some muscle mass. Like athletes should never do it. Again, if you look at that study, there's a couple studies now. You do see a change in muscle protein synthetic response, which is from Van Loon's lab. However, that study was at least 10 minutes done immediately post-training. And at least, I think that study was 50 degrees Fahrenheit or colder, which is probably more aggressive than what most people are doing. Um, so you're probably not doing it quite to that degree. Maybe some people are. Even then, I tried to look through the literature at like the five studies that have been done on that to figure out in English, like how much of your gains is this costing you? You know, so 
hypothetically, if you can gain, let's say one pound of muscle per month, which is, you know, on the very high extreme, at least for natural people, is cold water immersion done immediately under lab parameters? Is that costing you half a pound, a quarter pound? I don't know, right? Because it's done with either DEXA, which didn't have the resolution to determine, uh, or muscle biopsy cross-sectional area, which you can determine there's a difference, but it's hard to scale that up into what does that look like in an actual walking around human. However, even if that is a real thing, which it does appear it is a real thing, in season, I, I don't care. Like if I'm, if it was neutral, yeah, great. You know, if it, they feel better and they can perform better the next day, then I'm probably still going to have them do it. So I think the context of in-season, off-season makes a difference. So they tend to be inverses of each other. Off-season, my bias is I don't like using a lot of recovery modalities. There is a chance you may screw up the adaptation. Your goal is long-term performance and if you miss your bench press session on Monday and miss your numbers, it's not a huge deal, right? In season, you screw up, yeah, a lot, lot higher cost with that. Eh, worst case, you may not even be on the team next year. Um, so they're kind of inverses of each other. Other stuff I think that does potentially help, there's some pretty good data on sauna for recovery. Again, what is it actually doing is, is debatable. And you also want, again, I sound like a pitch for HRV, you still want to monitor what this is affecting, at least on a surrogate monitor or output the next day, because anything that can potentially help recovery could also impair it too. If I shoved you in a sauna for 30 minutes and I cranked it up and said, good luck, buddy, have fun. You're doing your recovery. And like after 10 minutes, every part of you says, I need to get the hell out of here. I can guarantee you that that's probably not recovery work for you, right? And that's what I've seen in some people is one person in particular was a CrossFit athlete. And we're watching their HRV scores and their performance for like four weeks is just tanking. I'm like, what the hell's going on? Like we same, similar program, similar setup. Nutrition was the same. We went through sleep. We went through everything. I'm like pounding my head against the wall. I'm like, going, what the hell? They didn't have a high temp. They had an aura on. Like there was nothing out of the ordinary other than their HRV was just <clears throat> dropping. Their performance was dropping. And so eventually I got on the phone with them. I'm like, hey man, like, Okay, let's walk through your day. Like, what are you doing that's different? And they're like, oh, well, I did like 15 minutes of Wim Hof breathing in the morning. And then I would do cold exposure for at least like 10 minutes. And I'm like, how did you feel after the cold exposure for 10 minutes? It's like, oh, it was cold like all morning. I couldn't get warm. <laughs> I'm like, uh. it's like, but these are supposed to help my recovery. I'm like, but they also can be sympathetic stressors at some point too. You know, if you go sit around and superventilate breathing and breath holds for 10 minutes, if you're not accustomed to it, it definitely can be a sympathetic stressor. Um, so anything that's pushed too far can actually kind of backfire on you. Um, I do use some of the, you know, the massage guns, that type of stuff. I primarily use it on the RPR, reflexive performance reset. I use it on those points. It can be helpful, but what I found is the effect tends to be rather short meaning maybe it gets a little more blood flow, who knows. Um, if I do it, I definitely have people do it before a training session. Um, you can get a little bit better, I think, activation, but you need some movement in order uh, for that to stick. I don't know why, but it appears just the normal force, just the mechanical pushing on the muscle, you get just a shit ton of mechanical stim that can help, but doesn't seem to hang around very long. Um, so if I have clients do their own RPR stuff, I'm actually trying to get a little bit more shear stress so I want them to push in on the tissue and then get it to slide a little bit more. 
for whatever reason, anecdotally, that appears to stick a lot longer. Um, other stuff than that, I just ask him like, what do you like doing? You know, and it, <clears throat> sometimes I don't even know if it's the, the modality or the fact that they're not doing anything else at that time. And it's like, yeah, do a 20 minute sauna at night. If you feel nice and relaxed, don't bring your phone in. Maybe just read a book. Now, I don't know if they just sat on their couch and read a book where they see the same effect, but removing them from all of their stimulus appears to help. So if they're like, yeah, that sauna was great. Perfect. Let's just keep, you know, doing it unless they get inquisitive and want to know exactly why, et cetera. So I think a lot of it comes down to what they enjoy. Are you monitoring it? And then, you know, how much time do they have? Um, you know, you can go get as fancy as, you know, I've had some people do like, you know, float tanks, which can be super helpful. Um, you know, Cal has one on like a mammalian dive reflex and I've got different protocols for cold water immersion. If I want someone to be more sympathetic versus more parasympathetic, there's ways you can, you know, tweak that with just exposure and temperature, et cetera. Um, and the very last part on that is if you're using heart rate variability, you may see some people that deviate too far parasympathetically. This doesn't happen that often, but it does happen. <clears throat> and if they have to perform under that condition, their output is normally not so good. They feel tired. They take 400 milligrams of caffeine. They feel like they want to take a nap in the back. So things that are very short-lived but are sympathetic stressors can then potentially, again, our definition of recovery, bring them back down to baseline. Uh, so again, I stole this one from Cal Dietz, like uh, isometric trap bar pull. So put the trap bar under the pins in a, a squat rack that's like nailed down. And you would go to about two or three inches from the top, no load on the bar. You're going to slowly pull up against the pin. And then you're going to try to pull up as hard as you can for like three to five seconds. So what are you doing? You're trying to get a super high sympathetic output, but with no load, no eccentric, no muscle damage, nothing else, and very, very short exposures. You could have someone do very, very cold water. So just get in, leave your head out, and then have it be as cold as possible for 30, 60 seconds, and then get back out. The more exposure you get on just the skin level will be more of a sympathetic. If you're at a, not as cold of a temperature, but you stay in longer and you can control your breathing and you're not shivering, that'll push you a little bit more on the parasympathetic side. So again, there's things you can do to try to, again, get back to baseline a little bit faster. Last caveat, making sure that you're not really destroying the adaptation you want in the in the meantime. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. And I really like how you pointed out the the potential, I guess, confounders, especially with the stretching. It's like, is it the stretching that's helping people with their recovery? Or is it just like actually just feeling like they're relaxing, like they're breathing, they're sort of winding down a little bit? Because um, that is something that I sort of suspect for myself. And it was like, you do a yoga class and they really get you to focus on your breathing the whole time by the end of it you're just like so chill so i, I doubt that that's because you stretched out a bunch <laughs> but um yeah in in terms of uh recovery actually one of the things that i've been kind of experimenting with with a couple of my athletes that um i found to be really effective but i would love to to hear your feedback on it is uh, just sort of improving their their general quality of life by getting them to go out more. So some athletes that I have anyways are just super, super type A. Like all they do is their training and their work. And it's almost like their work is just there to facilitate their training. And uh, it gets to a point where they end up isolating themselves. And I'm, I'm definitely guilty of this myself as well, 
where they'll isolate themselves and they'll, because they're dieting or they're training, they just won't go out. They won't stay out late. They won't do all these things. They'll say no to certain social activities and they kind of will only kind of hang out in certain circles. And uh, one of the things that I've done has been actually trying to make my athletes have a certain amount of social engagement per week, uh, especially for the ones who, who struggle to do that, uh, I guess, innately. And I found that that's actually really helped uh, like improve their HRV scores, improve their subjective evaluations of stress, improve their mood. And then I've also sort of noticed that like over time, over the span of a couple of weeks, their performance tends to actually align pretty well with with that, as well as like their, I guess, subjective evaluation of kind of quality of life in general. And um, I know that that is something that's kind of like outside the scope of coaching, but sort of being like, hey, how can we improve your quality of life? Is that something you've ever sort of looked at or anything that you've, um, uh, I guess, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of data on in terms of risk factors for just longevity, like social isolation is way at the top. Like some people have argued the risk of that may even be higher than cigarette smoking, right? So we know, like if you think about what is the worst punishment for someone would be solitary confinement, right? Removal of all outside, any type of human interaction. So even people that are more introverts still need that to some degree. Um, so I do talk a fair amount with that with clients. The big question I ask him, which I stole from my buddy, Dr. Ben House is like, hey man, like what do you do for fun? especially in the fitness field, people are like, well, you know, I go to the gym, I exercise and then I train clients and then I go home and then I sleep. Okay. So would you do anything for fun? Well, you know, I train. I said, I got the training part. I got it. You like training. Cool. Me too. That's awesome. But like, do you have any hobbies? Do you have any recreation? Like literally what else do you do? <clears throat> and sometimes they're like, uh, like nothing. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe you should just pick a sport for recreation. You're going to get a little more extra movement. I do think there is a benefit to coordinating hand-eye motion with a ball or an external environment, especially an environment that's unpredictable to some degree, uh, especially as you age. And a lot of people are just like, oh, but I'm going to suck at that. I'm like, yep, that's probably good to learn to suck at something again too. Um, and that's one you can track. Again, I'm not worried about, you know, tracking their calories or performance. It's like, just go have fun. Um, even, you know, social stuff can fall into that area. Uh, one of the things I secretly look in my clients is, are they doing other new activities and are they seeking them out and trying to do better at them? You know, so I have a client who took up wake surfing. Great. You know, other clients who are doing more, you know, different sports. Other clients can take up snowboarding this winter again. I'm like, awesome. Because I think those things to have a long-term payoff, usually I find that their training improves, whether it's time away, getting their brain off of it, who knows, different movement patterns, you know, different engagement in their brain, all of it I think is beneficial. And then back to what you were saying about HRV scores too is in the past, I would see a low HRV score and it'd be like, oh, what did you do? And I'm like, assuming that it's something negative. And now I ask them and say, hey, just tell me about, you know, this day. And if there's someone who doesn't do a lot of social things and they did something more social or they took up a new sport and it didn't quite go so well. Great. That's awesome. Like maybe it was a little bit stressful for your body. Again, could have been just a coincidence. Who knows? But I'm not going to be like, oh, your HRV score is horrible now. Don't ever do that thing again. Because then they probably never would do it again because they didn't need any justification to do it anyway. Uh, so those are things I look for long term. And then 
you know, just an honest discussion with them about what is your number one goal? You know, and some people, especially, you know, people who are athletes who are not, let's say, getting paid professionally to do it and just sit down and have an honest conversation with them. Like, hey, what is your goal? Like, maybe it is to try to be a professional or whatever. Cool. All right. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just to see how well you can do and live a better life. Okay. So even if it's the latter, there's probably other things you can do now to improve the quality of your life. Right. I think there's an easy thing of, you know, once I make the team or once I get drafted or whatever it is, everything is going to be amazing then. Or, you know, training to hit whatever time, you know, whatever lift it is. You know, people think that when they hit those magical numbers that like the sky parts and their life all of a sudden becomes amazing. And if you've been around long enough and you've hit some of your goals, you realize, at least for me, hey, that was cool. I like that. I'm glad I hit that. And then it's kind of anticlimactic, you know, because one, nobody cares, you know, it's just something you wanted to do. And then when you hit it, you automatically are like, oh, now, but I want to do this thing or I want to add to that. Or, you know, I deadlifted 400. Now I want to do 500, 600, 700. You know, even like the elite of the elite, it's like, you know, almost never ending. Most of them stop because of injuries and other other causes per se. So I think just, you know, having an honest conversation with them about what do you want to do? What is the cost? And for me, like my you know, main goal is to go kiteboarding more often and hit a 20 foot jump and do all that kind of stuff. I like training. I think it's great. I have some grip goals and stuff I want to hit. But because I know what my number one goal is, if it's windy and I have time to go kiteboard, I'll skip a training session. Right. But to most people looking in, they'd be like, oh, what, what, why are you doing that? Well, because it, this thing fits better with my overall goals of what I want to do. And that's not right or wrong. I think everyone just has to figure out what are your goals and what are you trying to do? And then what cost is an okay cost to play, to pay with that. All right. So I've often joked that, you know, if Maynard from Tool shows up at my door and says, hey, here's a backstage pass and we'll hang out all night. Of course I'm going to go. Is my training in HRV going to be complete dog shit the next day? Yeah. Would I care? No. <laughs> right. So I think you have to always look at the the big picture. And I know I'm guilty in the past of, you know, probably coming down too hard on people, even though they were doing it for the right reason and they were going in the right direction. And I kind of scared them away from that. Awesome. No, that that's uh, that's definitely a really great point, like understanding the trade-offs and uh, sort of clarifying what's actually important because that does become difficult, especially if you've been in something for a long time and you haven't really reevaluated because I mean, as you grow, obviously things change. If you have a family, if you go to school, if you career shift. Um, so there's a lot of things that can absolutely change along the way. Um, we're kind of running up to about an hour. And before we kind of close off and, and you know, you tell everyone where, where they can find you, I just wanted to ask if there's anything maybe we, we didn't touch on or maybe anything that you think is, is pertinent uh, to share. Um. I would say not necessarily. I mean, I think if the thing that doesn't get talked about a lot is just overall goals at a high level. And then the things you're doing, do they match that goal? And that's going to be highly individual for each person. Some people are more social. Some people are not as social. But, you know, I always try to look at them. Anyone is a complete human organism, not just... And I think this is even worse sometimes with elite level athletes, 
we sometimes forget that yeah they're they're human too like having a social party or doing other things you know and their metrics of their sleep may not be amazing but maybe they feel better and their family's happy with them and so the next four weeks are a lot easier because of that right there's a lot of things that are different and the last part related to that is that everyone's also an individual i've seen things happen to people where i assume their hrv score would be just dog shit and it was fine and i've seen other athletes where it's like man why did why did this show red like all their training's good nutrition's good everything's good and then it was more on the psychological side right so just figuring out what is kind of the main thing for that individual person um, while on paper they may look similar but when you test them a lot of times they can be quite different Awesome. No, I, I think that's an absolutely fantastic point. Um, I remember when I started, uh, when I first started putting more value into kind of some of the subjective feedback, like stress scores, mood, um, even just like things like perception of training that's sort of intentionally vague. Um, I got way more constructive feedback that really helped me dial in in terms of what the athlete needed moving forward. So I, I completely agree with you. Um, so where can people find you and are you working any projects or anything like that? Yeah, in terms of projects, there's always stuff going on. Um, working to hopefully get out the Triphasic 2 book with Cal, which will be all new material. So hopefully that'll be out. I don't know when, but we're working on it, <laughs> trying to get it out. And then other projects, I have the Flex Diet certification, which is eight different interventions to maximize more of the nutrition recovery side, everything from protein, fats, carbohydrates, fasting, keto, exercise, sleep, etc. Uh, you can find more about that at flexdiet.com. That's based on the concept of metabolic flexibility. And then I also have something that's the physiologic flexibility, which is trying to target the four homeostatic regulators of physiology. So these are things that your body absolutely has to hold stable, like temperature, pH, fuels, and then oxygen, carbon dioxide. And how do you train each one of those areas to be a more robust kind of anti-fragile individual, just much harder to kill? And to me, those things help the most for your long-term kind of your chronic recovery capacity because it allows your body to handle more stress. It could be in the form of, of training or just things that happen to you in life. So that's at uh, physiologicflexibility.com. And then most of the stuff I put out content-wise is through the newsletter. I can get on there for free, just at miketnelson.com. And I also have a podcast, which is the Flex Diet Podcast. Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you go give him a follow, check out his stuff, and uh, make sure you subscribe to his newsletter. Puts out lots of great content. Mike, thanks so much for jumping on, man. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.